the Gucci girl, Prada professional, coach queen, or target trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. Cranberry Radio proudly presents Purse Strings. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan, chief storyteller at Styled Retail, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow. Now, please welcome our host of Purse Strings, Maria Retan. I'm Maria Retan. Thanks so much for joining me today. You can catch Purse Strings right here every Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Each and every week, you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country. The 51% of us who control more than 80% of all the spending. The woman. Well, first up, an article by Gavin O'Malley on Snapchat. You may have seen this. Uh, Snapchat's debut glasses that's right glasses that record video now this may sound very much like google glass now you may remember that google spent millions of dollars in development and marketing dough uh, before giving up on their glass initiative well apparently now snapchat has just unveiled what they're calling as spectacles they're stylish i guess you could call them stylish video recording sunglasses that are supposed to retail for around 130 dollars they're going to hit store this fall and they are supposed to record 10 second video snippets which are designed to approximate one's natural field of vision that's thanks to a 115 degree lens that records circular video kind of cool huh well, apparently Snapchat, which has just rebranded itself as Snap Inc., has been trying to learn. Again, the price tag is much less than the 1500 that Google was charging for their glass. Um, it's being sold as a single-purpose device as opposed to multiple-purpose like Google was. Um, and really, Snapchat, or Snap Inc., as it's calling itself, is positioned for huge growth. Um, this messaging app is supposed to generate... 366 million in ad revenues this year, but it's expected to almost triple to 935 million next year. So it's kind of the darling. Uh, however, still with all of that, it only captures 2.3% of social networking dollars, according to eMarketer. And that's despite the fact that it commands 36% of the market in terms of users. So it's hugely, hugely popular, especially with that young demographic. Gen Z, which is, again, um, Snapchat's reaching them in droves. So that's also why they're very popular. Well, speaking of uh, Gen, not necessarily Z, but young Gen Y, it's our first profile today. Doing a single women, early 20s, trend where more than a million of these women out there uh, in college, for the most part, employed part-time. Of course, no children in the home. They very much keep up with fashion. In fact, fashion magazines help determine the clothes they buy. Uh, They buy the latest fashions each and every season. Uh, People come to them for advice before buying. They're always the first among their friends to try new styles and to shop new stores. They like to stand out in a crowd, make a unique They are impulsive shoppers, they say. They spend more than they can afford on clothes. They spend a lot of money on toiletries and cosmetics. Um, They buy on the spur of the moment, and and they believe it or not, they say they're not any good at saving money, probably because they're out there shopping all the time. Uh, They are ambitious, wanting to get to the top of their career and making money is an outcome of that. They love to look at brands. In fact, they will always 
well-known brands. So they're very conscious of the labels they're buying. So at retail, they're shopping at Nordstrom, BB, American Eagle, uh, Banana Republic, Victoria's Secret, and Express. Buying Gucci, Kenneth Cole, and Prada are among their designers. Uh, You can intersect them reading Cosmopolitan. Lure, Glamour, Elle, In Style, Vogue, and Us Weekly. They're watching EVH1, um, Adult Swim, Comedy Central, and uh, they're online a lot, of, uh, many of those same types. Of My guest today, uh, ironically, knows a lot about this snapshot of a, uh, reverse it about, oh, I don't know, 40 years, and a babe, if you will, Helen Gurley Brown was kind of the first of the feminists to to start to rise through the ranks. And you may know her from her very popular book at the time, Sex and the Single Girl. She also, along with her husband, reimagined Cosmopolitan into the magazine that you know today. Well, Brooke took a lot of time in writing a book about Helen, and it's called Enter Helen, The Invention of Helen Gurley Brown and the Rise of the Modern Single Woman knows what she's doing. She's an author and a journalist writing for magazines like Allure and Glamour and Marie Claire, the New York Times and the LA Times. Her first book was called The New Immigrant Teens and it won an award back in 2012. She teaches nonfiction writing at Smith College and she is going to be at the Miami Book Fair this November talking about her book. I'm thrilled. Her strings. We'll be right back after a word from our advertisers. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising? Or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? Studies show that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average. The web marketing experts at WMETraining.com can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean, converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the web marketing experts at WMETraining.com. Cranberry, Cranberry Radio. We're everywhere. Find our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere you download your podcasts. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. My guest today is Brooke Hauser. She's the author of a new book called Enter Helen, The Invention of Helen Gurley Brown and the Rise of the Modern Single Woman. She's a longtime journalist, has written for Allure, Glamour, the New York Times, LA Times, among many other publications. Um, This book, Enter Helen, isn't her first book. She's written another one called The New Kids, Big Dreams and Brave Journey. 
at a high school for immigrant immigrant teens, and that won an American Library Association 2012 Alex Award. She also frequently writes writes nonfiction at, or excuse me, teaches nonfiction writing at Smith College, and she's going to be at the Miami Book Fair coming here, uh, bringing the world into Helen. And I'm very excited to have Brooke on the show today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Maria. Well, first, I have to ask you, considering that your last about immigrant teens, how in the world the life story of Helen Gurley Brown? Uh, you know, I've been thinking about what are the commonalities between those two books, and I really enjoy writing about people who I admire and also kind of teasing out this theme of the American dream. And I think that Helen Gurley Brown is a great... Um, American dream story. You know, she started out as a quote-unquote Mouseburger, a plain girl from Arkansas, and really built herself into this media and cultural icon in the 1960s. Um, She was just a product of her own will and pulling herself up, not from her bootstraps, but maybe you could say from her you know, heels, she would wear heels and coochie dresses, that's more her style, but um, I just thought she was a great character, and when I moved to Western Massachusetts and, and started the Smith College community, I discovered that her papers are actually collected there, and it seems like a natural place for me to kind of dig in and learn about her. Well, she was uh, a very interesting character, as you mentioned. Character is a great word for her. She's a little mm-hmm. bit, I think, of an unlikely revolutionary, though. I mean, she came from a fairly modest background. It's a, a background that seemed to cast a shadow on her own perception of herself a little bit. Can you share more about that? Well, you know, it was fun for me to, to look into her background because she always described basically being hillbilly and poor. And I went to Arkansas and met with uh, one of her cousins, really one of her last surviving relatives. And um, the, the cousin, her name is Lou, she, or Norma Lou at the time when she was a child and, and got to know Helen, her older cousin, um, you know, it's, the story that Helen always told her about herself wasn't really true. It was partly myth. And, you know, she certainly went through very hard times, especially as a teenager when her family moved out to Los Angeles. But when she was growing up in Arkansas um, as a little girl, she was firmly middle class. Her father had been a lawyer and was building his pool. He had been a school teacher. And, um, you know, I think that she really ran with this almost Hollywood logline of from hillbilly to Hollywood. You know, she... She built her own legend, and it was important for her to have a dramatic story as a best-selling author. It helped her sell books. Mm. So it was interesting for me to learn about that. Of course, she did have some really tough times. Her uh, father ended up dying in a tragic elevator accident when she was just a little girl, and after that point, her sister got polio, and they ended up living in California, and that's when things got really hard. But I think there's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of um, layers to her story, and sometimes she simplified it just to, um, you know, get this this message across and to sell books. Well, yes, and it was the book that kind of rocked the world of many people out there at the time. An instant success 
Sex and the Single Girl. I think almost everybody in America, every woman in America knows about that book, even though it's Mm -hmm. been a long, long time since it's been out. And it really was the first of its kind book to look at what was considered to be the modern single woman. In other words, a working woman. And a woman who didn't get married, you know, right away. And it wasn't a topic at the time that people really talked about publicly. And, of course, they they weren't talking about sex, that's for sure. Um, It really opened the door for women to begin to own their sexuality. Do you believe Helen was the right voice at the right time? In some ways, you know, yes, Sex and the Single Girl, I recently read it um, on its 50th anniversary, and I had never read it before. I'm in my late 30s now, mid-30s at the time when I first read it. And so a lot of this sex stuff really wasn't shocking to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was totally scandalous at the time. She was suggesting that instead of getting married young, women should date around and sleep around if they wanted to. She didn't say it quite that explicitly, But she did give, you know, very specific instructions for single girls who wanted to have an affair and that kind of thing, you know, how to pull it off from beginning to end. The thing that really resonated with me, um, and of course, I I had just had my first child, my son, and I I remember reading Sex and the Single Girl on the back of this jogging stroller. (laughs) I was on my town bike path and thinking, well, this is probably not what she had in mind, you know, here I am married (laughs) with a kid living in the suburbs and reading this book, Sex and the Single Girl, and, you know, the sex stuff, as I said, really uh, didn't seem that shocking to me as someone who, you know, grew up, well, not grew up, but, you know, was a college student when Sex and the City came out and has watched girls since and, you know, were saturated with images of sex in media, but what did resonate with me was her advice for working women and career women and how in some ways Sex and the Single Girl, more than a sex guide, was really a guide to becoming an individual, how to, um, you know, move out of your parents' house, get your own apartment at a time when women really weren't allowed to rent their own apartments without having, you know, mm-hmm. someone vying for them like a father or a husband. Um, you know, how to turn a job into a career, work your way up from secretary into, you know, an ad copywriter like she did or something comparable, Um, how to date around, meet men, eventually find a husband, but in the meantime, how to live a rich and full life. That's the message that she was really trying to get across. Mm -hmm. And that resonated. She also gave really great, did had the experience of losing a lot of money in her family when she was young and always wanted to be rich. And so she was extremely frugal to, you know, some people saw it as being a real flaw because it, um, she was so obsessive about it, especially in her later years. But, um, I think she had really good advice about, you know, learning how to budget yourself and, and learning how to, um, prove yourself worthy for a job and indispensable and eventually how to turn that job into, you know, a real career. Mm-hmm. Which is something that she not only wrote about, but she lived by too. And I found it a little bit ironic that eventually it was a man that helped her achieve a lot of her success. Uh, talk a little bit about David Brown. He was older, very business savvy, um, and played a huge 
life beyond just merely being her her spouse or her mm-hmm. partner. Right. She married David Brown. I think she was thirty seven at the time, and um, he was a Hollywood movie guy, a producer, a story editor. Um, he had also been the managing editor of Cosmopolitan magazine once upon a time before they met. Um, in his later years, he went on to produce some of the biggest movies of all time, like Jaws is one example. Um, and in the book, I think I describe him as something like, um, you know, he was a producer and she was his biggest production of all time because it was his idea. Uh, Sex and the Single Girl was David Brown's idea. And she basically lobbied him for the chance to write it and, and made it her own. Um, and then when she had the phenomenal success with Sex and the Single Girl, you know, they sat down and wrote a proposal together for a new magazine called Femme. That ended up being the template for the magazine that we know as Cosmopolitan. And when they brought the proposal to her, she said, well, we don't want to give you a new magazine, but why don't you take our old magazine, Cosmopolitan, which had been around for a long time, and, you know, make it your own, turn it into something new. So that's what they did. And it was really David's connections that led her, you know, to be an editor of Cosmopolitan because she had never even worked at a magazine before that. So he was certainly, um, you know, almost like a tutor. <laughs> and then he, mm-hmm. he edited her and he advised her and he produced her in a lot of ways. But she also helped him in his career, too, Um you know, so they were really, in some ways, a, a very modern example of what marriage could be because they, but they also worked together and they really um, championed and were cheerleaders for each other. Right. And that, and that publication, Cosmopolitan, uh, went on to kind of probably be the reincarnation of sex and the single girl. And it ha- continues to kind of hold that. Uh, that role, I think, among magazines yet today. What do you think that reinvention of Cosmo at the time did for the publishing world? I mean, it was a huge success, and it really shook things up. Um, Previous to Helen Gurley Brown's uh, Cosmopolitan, magazines were really aimed towards housewives, and um, it was really fun for me to look through old issues of Ladies Home Journal and Good Housekeeping in the 50s and find these photo features showing women, you know, here's how you can um, wax the floors, clean the dishes, uh, you know, dust the attic, and then put your hair in a bow and apply your lipstick all before your husband walks through the door and you can serve him a martini then too. You know, it was really all about women being in service to their husbands and to their children. And Cosmopolitan was about women serving themselves first. Not that they shouldn't, you know, um, enjoy being married or having children if they wanted to, but Cosmopolitan basically said, you know, you don't have to do that. You can be a single woman for as long as you want. You can be a working woman. You should earn and buy things for yourself and develop yourself as a full person before you start, um, you know, taking on all these other obligations. And it also said women should enjoy sex, which is definitely a first. You know, she, of course, like... uh, cosmopolitan into this 
working girls sex bible too you know so there were there were these great mixes of stories um there were you know how to get ahead in your career stories mixed with how to give a phenomenal you know back massage and a hot tub kind of thing and it was just this um perfect cocktail that she created with cosmopolitan you see the lasting impact of that now when you look at magazines on the newsstand um you know first of all she made covers sexier so the cosmo girl became this iconic figure and i think has really um for better or worse revolutionized the way um magazines look uh, mm-hmm. but also how they talk to their readers she spoke to her reader um, as if she were a wiser, more sophisticated, older sister. It was a very personal and intimate tone that probably only Hugh Hefner could compete with, and that's how he spoke to his reader, not as the older sister, but as kind of like, you know, the older, wiser, more sophisticated bachelor friend. And, um, of course, Helen kind of modeled Cosmopolitan after Playboy to a degree. She really admired Hugh Hefner and thought that he was the genius when it came to creating a magazine. Mm-hmm. To, to develop, I think, uh, that whole kind of... We'll take a quick break, Brooke, and when we come back, I, I do want to delve in a little bit about Helen, how Helen was viewed by her, her peers because it wasn't necessarily as positive as one might think. So everybody stick around mm-hmm. more from Brooke Hauser, the author of Enter Helen, when we return in just a moment. Her strings. We'll be right back after a word from our advertisers. Literature is taking over Miami streets. Between November 13th and the 20th, downtown Miami will transform into a full week celebration of the literary arts. More than 500 plus authors are coming to share their new work at the 2016 Miami Book Fair. The Porch is open every evening complete with a full schedule of live music and performances, a farmer's market and cafe, food trucks, craft beer, and more. For more information on the 33rd Miami Book Fair, November 13th to the 20th at Miami-Dade College's Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami, call 305-237-3258 or visit MiamiBookFair.com. Follow Miami Book Fair on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Miami Book Fair. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Jamming and spamming. Cashing in the clicks. SEO is always in session. Only on Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. 
Welcome back. I've been chatting today with Brooke Hauser. She's an author and journalist who's written for many publications, national publications, as well as has authored a book on immigrant teens. Her latest book is coming up to be featured at the Miami Book Fair in November. It's called Enter Helen, The Invention of Helen Gurley Brown and the Rise of the Modern Single Woman. And we've been talking about Helen's invention of herself, really, as a, as a, a young girl moving into kind of becoming... Uh, the mentor for many of a young woman out there who wanted a career and wanted to kind of live this modern life. It was her book called Sex and the Single Girl that really allowed her to explode on the scene. And then with her husband, David Brown, the reinvention of Cosmo has become her lasting legacy as well. Uh, But Brooke, um, you know, Helen may have been among the first feminists, but she wasn't necessarily... Um, enthusiastically embraced by other women involved. Why Why was that? Well, I think a lot of women at the time had a problem with her, you know, image of the Cosmo girl as this, you know, extremely sexualized woman, um, lots of cleavage, lots of big hair. You know, that was one thing they thought that she objectified women. Um, Betty Friedan who was really credited as being the mother of the feminist movement, called Cosmo under Helen quite obscene and quite horrible. Um, what's interesting, though, is that Helen wrote and published um, Sex and the Single Girl in 1962, a year before Friedan's The Feminine Mystique came out. So I agree. You know, she, I do think that she was one of the first feminists. Uh, people have called her a proto-feminist, you know, because she kind of existed before that wave of feminism existed. So a lot of how she operated was kind of foreign to the younger feminists coming up, you know, making her way in a man's world. And this new generation of feminists who came after her didn't want to make it in the man's world. They wanted to change the world to make it a woman's world, you know, and they didn't want to have to play by the rules of men so much. Um, So, yes, Helen was um, criticized by a lot of younger feminists like Gloria Steinem, who, along with her staffers at Ms. Magazine, which started in the early 70s, they, you know, they called Cosmo the unliberated woman's survival kit. And when, you, you know, some of the original Ms. team were pitching Ms. as a concept to various advertisers, they said, you know, one way to think about what Ms. can be is to think about Cosmo as the poison and think about Ms. as the antidote. So, you know, for every article about how to please a man, um, Ms. would run, you know, how to, how to please yourself or how to, you know, uh, become, you know, make your voice heard in politics or something, you know, very kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum as Cosmo. Um, they didn't want to run any cosmetics ads. They didn't want to pander to women the way that they felt Cosmo did. Mm-hmm. How did Helen view them? Did she kind of have the same reaction to them, or was she... I think she didn't like Betty Friedan at first, because she felt um, that Betty Friedan was very critical of her, and she resented her for it. Um, you know, she was very polite in person, Helen was, so... She probably didn't express that animosity outright, but um, she felt it. And with Gloria Steinem, what's funny is I think Helen really admired Gloria Steinem. 
basically for all the reasons that we admire her now, that she, you know, she was one of the first female political reporters writing about um, politics for New York Magazine um, after the magazine launched. Um, she was, you know, extremely smart and um, just, you know, one of the leaders of the movement. Um, you know, what Helen really admired about Gloria Steinem, she loved that she was beautiful and sexy and attractive to men. And so at the first opportunity, you know, Helen actually featured Gloria in a Cosmo spread um, that described Gloria as a former Playboy bunny, which was a little bit misleading. Gloria had been, a, she disguised herself as a Playboy bunny in order to write an expose on the Playboy organization. Right. Um, and, you know, Helen didn't quite explain all of that in Cosmo. Instead, she featured Gloria in this um, very revealing outfit, kind of like a purple bloomers and like this, you know, revealing top and her legs were showing and she was posing with a popular TV actor at the time. And I remember coming across this this sexy photo spread, you know, basically featuring Gloria Steinem as this, you know, centerfold in Cosmo and thinking, what? Like, I couldn't believe my eyes. And I later had the opportunity to talk to Gloria Steinem about it. And she said, oh, my gosh, that was so humiliating. That was a case in which I was a mouse burger because I should have spoken my mind at that time and said, I don't want to have any part in this. But instead, she stuck around, hung around the photo shoot, and let the photographer take this picture of her. I also mm. spoke with the photographer, and he said, gosh, you know, 1968, or when, you know, the late 60s when he took this picture, he said, I had no idea who Gloria Steinem was, and <laughs> boy, did I regret taking that picture. You know, it was kind of his. So, you know, it was just a really funny moment in history, and Helen engineered it, and... Uh, you know, that's, it, to me, that kind of encapsulated what she saw when she looked at Gloria Steinem. Later on, they developed this kind of, if not exactly a friendship, and definitely, you know, they were allies. And Helen would give um, Gloria sometimes unsolicited advice about how Ms. could look a little sexier on the newsstand. And Gloria became this, you know, friend to Helen in the women's movement that didn't always accept her. She told, Gloria Steinem told me a great story about how once in the 70s there was a group of feminists protesting Cosmo, and they were in the lobby, and uh, Helen, she called Gloria on the phone, and she said, Gloria, Gloria, help me. Uh, your people are here, and you're protesting <laughs> Cosmo. Your people are here. And Gloria said, my people, who are my people? And Helen said, you know, women. <laughs> <laughs> and that is kind of how, that's how she saw, you know, the feminists, I think, is just like this other breed of person who she could at first hardly relate to. Um, she, in one Cosmo editor's letter, or editor's letter um, you know, confessed that in the beginning she thought they were all a bunch of, quote, um, hostile nut burgers, something like that. And um, over time, you know, she learned to just listen to the message that they were trying to get across, and she ended up featuring really feminist content in Cosmo over the years. You know, she made a lot of missteps. 
also published an excerpt of Kate Millett's sexual politics and ran articles telling women, you know, how they could obtain safe abortions and had, you know, a lot of good advice to give along with the bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm glad to know that Helen and Gloria did find some common ground, at least, because I think when we think of kind of that iconic person of the woman's movement, Gloria Steinem, and when you think about Cosmo today, it certainly feels more like a, you know, has been more of a feminist statement in the past. If Do you feel like young women today know about Helen? I mean, you, 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 you're at Smith. You know, do you think they know who she is, and do you think they really understand her legacy? I don't think most young women know who she is. I didn't know that much about her when I started writing this book, and that was after writing women's magazine for years. Um, People have just kind of forgotten about her. Now I think they're starting to remember her more, um, you know, thanks to a biography, and like you said, there's a movie in the works, and her name has been circulating more um, but no, I, I think that she's been largely forgotten, and that's partly because her legacy is a complicated one, because she had so much, you know, she gave so much great advice. Like I said, she gave so much bad advice, too, <laughs> and it's just this real mixed grab bag. Um, so, you know, you say the name Gloria Steinem, I think most people know exactly who that is. You say the name Helen Gurley Brown, and... Uh, I think that she's largely been forgotten, even though Cosmo continues to be a real powerhouse in the magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, in many ways, now it reads more like kind of a dream collaboration between someone like Helen Gurley Brown and articles that they still run occasionally. There's, you know, very heavy political content, especially online. And um, some of Cosmo.com's or Cosmopolitan.com's reporters have been asking, you know, very hard-hitting questions of people like, um, you know, Ivanka Trump, for example. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, it's, it's fun to read and I hadn't thought about Helen Gurley Brown in many, many, many years, to say the least. So it's nice that she's mm-hmm. having a renaissance, so to speak, through your book. And I hope you have a hugely successful uh, Miami Book Fair showing. And thank you so much for being on the show today to remind everyone about Helen Gurley Brown and what a fascinating <laughs> well, woman she is. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It was fun, fun to talk. And I want to remind everyone, you can go to Brooke Hauser, H-A-U-S. Dot com to learn more about Brooke and all her great works and of course about the book which you can purchase online and in bookstores near you. Thanks to my producer George and join me right here next week for another edition of Purse Strings 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Until then make it a great one. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited 